Tonight's reading is Psalm 39, and it's page 565 on your pew Bibles. I said, I will watch my ways and keep my tongue from sin. I will put a muzzle on my mouth while in the presence of the wicked. So I remained utterly silent, not even saying anything good, but my anguish increased My heart grew hot within me. While I meditated, the fire burned. Then I spoke with my tongue. Show me, Lord, my life's end and the number of my days. Let me know how fleeting my life is. You have made my days a mere handbreadth. The span of my years is as nothing before you. Everyone is but a breath even those who seem secure. Surely everyone goes around like a mere phantom. In vain they rush about, heaping up wealth, without knowing whose it will finally be. But now, Lord, what do I look for? My hope is in you. Save me from all my transgressions, Do not make me the scorn of fools. I was silent. I would not open my mouth. For you are the one who has done this. Remove your scourge from me. I am overcome by the blow of your hand. When you rebuke and discipline anyone for their sin, you consume their wealth like a moth. Surely everyone is but a breath. Hear my prayer, Lord. Listen to my cry for help. Do not be deaf to my weeping. I dwell with you as a foreigner, a stranger, as all my ancestors were. Look away from me, that I may enjoy life again, before I depart and am no more. This is the word of the Lord. So in Act 4, Shakespeare's fake king, Macbeth, opines, life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage, and then it is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. And in Psalm 39, God's real king, David, says... Everyone is but a breath, even those who seem secure. Surely everyone goes about like a mere phantom. In vain they rush about, heaping up wealth without knowing whose it will finally be. The famous reformer John Calvin, when reading and studying this psalm, said that David's grief and his his feelings went too far. His anguish was too much. He's outside the proper limits of what's right. Hey, keep it together, David. Don't express these things in a song. Don't write them down in a songbook to be sung in public worship. As I was preparing for this sermon and and looking, uh, I didn't find many sermons or talks um, or devotionals or conferences themed around Psalm 39. Um, This doesn't make the greatest hits. There's not a lot of motivational posters coming out of Psalm 39. All life is vanity. Um, 
And it's not hard to imagine um, why we kind of step around this psalm. Meditating on Psalm 39 leaves us in a bit of a tailspin. And yet, this psalm taps into a very deep seed from which our culture and our world have drawn much inspiration and knowledge. David has been brought low. He's been brought to a place of depression and is on the verge of nihilism, giving in to believing meaninglessness and emptiness is in all things. And yet, I don't think where he sits is entirely wrong. There's a kernel of truth. All of human life is filled with some degree of vanity or impermanence or insignificance. So many of the things that we pour ourselves into come to nothing. And a proper understanding of mankind and who we are and a proper understanding of God as being above that is necessary to actually coming to God. So here tonight, in this place of worship, when we come together with his people, I want to tell you that this place of depression that David is in is okay. If you're looking around and feeling like everything is frivolous or pointless, or you're emotionally spent or disconnected, you feel jaded or philosophically frustrated with what you see in the world around you. Maybe you're wondering, along with Jack Nicholson, what if this is as good as it gets? You can be in that moment and not be far from God. So to help us understand this psalm and to go through this journey with David, to go into this valley with him, um, I want to walk through Psalm 39. There's roughly four moments within this psalm uh, first, there's David's resolve in this conversation, this, this conflict he's having with whoever these people are around him. Um, and he doesn't like where it's going, so there's a, there's a conflict there. The second moment is that this situation, this real situation in his life, leads him to a phys- philosophical reflection on the frailty and futility of human life. And then third is when he tr- returns and he tries to find refuge in God. And this is where this psalm is very different than many other psalms. A lot of psalms talk about the struggle, and they also talk about God's deliverance or the glory of his creation, his power expressed in many ways. They find joy joy and hope in bleak moments and then say, and so God will rescue me, and so the righteous will rejoice in the end. But here in Psalm 39, this is such a dark moment for David that we see his attempt to find God And then finally, it closes with a cry for help. There's one thing I want you to keep in mind, poetically speaking. I'm a bit of a literature nut. um, As we go through this, and which is the motif of silence throughout this psalm. There's three moments of silence that we'll highlight as we go through. Um, And tying them together speaks about how something that we affirm a lot, we affirm silence and kind of holding your tongue. um, And that can have a lot of different tastes in our mouth. So think about silence as we go. Now, um, first, we come to David in this conflict where he says, I'll put a muzzle on my mouth while in the presence of the wicked. I remained utterly silent, not even saying anything good. 
It appears that David is in this moment where David is suffering in a very public way, that his failures are on display. Perhaps it's in the wake of God's punishments uh, for David's sins with Bathsheba, or some commentators think that this is towards the end of his life, and one of his children has turned against him, he's trying to overthrow his kingdom, and he's not, things aren't looking good for David. And it's kind of obvious that some of this is David's fault. But in any case, it's obvious that, um, uh, that there are those around David who are criticizing him, who are speaking ill of him. And, and we don't know, because David's the one writing this, we don't know how justified they were in, in criticizing him, in voicing their displeasure. Um, but David can't abide their attacks. His, his heart grows hot within him. The more he thinks about it, the fire burns. Even though he says, um, even though he follows the good advice, right? Hold your tongue. If you don't have anything good to say, don't say anything at all. And does it work for him? Well, he hates it, right? We've all been in those moments. Somebody says something, and um, whatever it is, they've offered some advice or a suggestion, or they've tut-tutted at some mess we've created. I can't believe they said that. I cannot believe she had the nerve to come into my house and, and sometimes we hold our tongues and sometimes, sometimes we don't. But it's agony either way. The intensity of our anger and our desire to defend ourselves. Silence doesn't rescue us from that anger inside of us. And this is part of being human, right? Some fragmented, corrupted piece of being in the image of God means that it hurts when we're criticized. And we feel that maybe what they're saying isn't entirely true. We don't like people to say untrue things about us. But in those moments, this is a thing that David gets very right. In this very angry moment, he starts with prayer. He brings himself and his mess to God. He goes through that moment with God. His heart, is his heart completely in the right place when he writes this psalm? when he says the people around me are living pointless lives. Maybe not. Maybe his heart isn't completely right. There's a subtle self-righteousness in some of this. But he brings it to God. We need to bring those moments to God. Don't expect God to affirm the worst meanness of your heart, but be honest with him when you feel it. See him for who he is. As David prays, he starts to think about human life. And for me, I identify with with this, not necessarily the conflict that causes his reflection, but the philosophy that he comes to um, is quite commonplace in our day and age. We have a name for it, nihilism. And and where we live in um, nihilism and meaninglessness are on the table. It's one of the options you can pick when you're picking a life philosophy not having hope and seeing futility. And we know, if we're honest, that human life is filled with many broken ends, many broken and uh, incomplete parts. If you ever worked for any organization or a corporation, you know that somebody has come in with a new product or a new initiative, and, um, or, or the, and we've made a big song and dance about the old system is going away. And... and if you reflect on it, 
not too long ago, maybe just even last year, that initiative was what everybody was yelling about. This is, going to be, this is going to change the world. And now we've turned around and we're going the opposite direction and nobody cares about that anymore. And wasn't that silly? People have spent their lives and built their careers making something that's now discarded to the scrap heap of history. How the, our efforts um, that we now laugh at as silly And even in church, there's new initiatives, there's new visions, there's new uh, programs that we put together, and then they break up, people move away, and sometimes it feels very pointless. All of this is meaningless. It's a hand breath. It will come and go, and maybe we shouldn't care. And there is a dimension of right understanding in that. It's a depressing thought, but I think it's important for us as Christians to wrestle with that. One of the most important, impactful talks that I ever heard as a Christian was when I was of secondary age, I visited my friend Jared's youth group, and they were doing a series on Ecclesiastes, which has deep echoes with David's state of mind in Psalm 39. Um, a lot of vanity, vanity, all is vanity. And the theme of that series was freedom, the freedom to be where we are in our lives. And that night was titled, The Freedom to Be Depressed. Um, and that's our first takeaway here. There's a reality here when David says everyone is but a breath. And sometimes our lives brings us to those moments. I find that deeply uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable because it connects with my darkest moments and musings. The poems that I write but rarely share. Certainly not in a psalm. But, but God knows and sees and wants to go through those moments with us. He can take it and be that faithful companion. It's so easy uh, to go to church and to think, oh gosh, I'm supposed to have it together. I'm supposed to be happy. I'm supposed to rejoice in all things. I'm supposed to feel hopeful. I'm not supposed to be down. It's easy to, and it's easy also to look at the world around you and say, what's the point of all this? Why are we bothering? Are we missing something? I asked Jamie to play a song tonight in jest, um, but I don't think it made the set list, called Nothing Matters Anymore by one of my favorite bands, uh, Showbread. Um, they're one of my favorite bands uh, because they came to me in, in my high school years, and a lot of their music, uh, their loud, screaming, angry music, wrestles with this problem that life is short and vain and pointless, And yet, we have this hope in God. We have this God who loves us, who reaches us in those moments. Songs of hopelessness help steer me, personally, away from other voices in the world that said, it makes sense to lose hope, it makes sense to give up, so do what you like. No one's there to catch you. But as Christians, God invites us to bring those moments to him. You can be there and not be far from God. You have the freedom to be in that part of the human experience, to be down. We can rest with God even when we feel pointless. And so he turns to God in his moment of depression. He says, my hope is in you. My hope is in you. And here's our second moment of silence. David realizes in this moment that he's not up to scratch. He's asking for rescue, but he's not right. He doesn't deserve to be rescued. 
He deserves to be torn down. He now connects his, this bleak view of the world with the fact that actually God is the one who orchestrates this. I am silent because your hand has done it. And if we look at uh, verses uh, 9 through 11, I think they might be up on the screen in a moment. Um, he says, I am silent because your hand has done it. You have consumed us like a moth. John Calvin writes on this, Although God does not openly thunder from heaven against the reprobate, yet his secret curse ceases not to consume them away, just as the moth wastes a piece of cloth or wood with its secret gnawing. David has turned to God, but he's still haunted by humanity's ephemerality. The second moment of silence is much different than the first. He's not simply biting his tongue to avoid getting into a silly fight. He's kept silent by his submission to his father's judgments. He's silent because he knows that even when he is suffering, it comes from God. I wish David would lift his eyes to the horizon. I wish he would see how wonderfully God has made him and what an incredible hope that Jesus offers. But David can't see it. If you've ever counseled a friend who's in a Psalm 39 moment, it's so hard when they can't see. And you just want to shake them and say, come on, see it. Let's get through this. Tick the box. Can't you see the hope? So if you're in a Psalm 39 moment, remember, remember that you're frustrated with the people around you, thinking they know better. But please know that you are in the heart of God even in those dark moments. Go through that moment with God. Those weeks or maybe even those months with him and keep asking Jesus to show you the depth of his love for you. Keep saying, my hope is in you, my hope is in you. So what do we ask God for? There's a tension in these final two verses. Um, If we could move on to the last two verses, Edmund, that'd be great. Um, In these final two verses, There's a a deep, almost a contradiction. David's lost it. There's no more sobbing. There's no more silence. He's moved on from praying to, to crying and demanding, God, how can you be silent? And this is our third moment of silence. God is silent to David. Won't you speak? Don't you care? How can you keep that placid look on your face? David wants God to speak. He wants him to intervene, to clean this up. And yet, verse 13, David longs for God to turn away. David feels that his suffering is connected to his sin. And Richard spent a lot of time on that this morning, um, which was uh, fantastic. And David feels that. He knows that he can't face a God who judges justly. He can't even be in the same room as him. God, please turn away. Give me some relief. But also intervene. David's two pleas are desperately needed. We need, to turn, we need God to turn towards us. And we need him to turn away. This is the dilemma of the sinner. We want God to fix the problems we've made and we blame him for the decay, and we want God to just let us chill. 
Before I enter my final reflection on this, this tension, I want to pause and absorb that this is where David ends the psalm. He finishes feeling hopeless, not only about human life, not only about his own guilt, but also about the impossible requests that we make of God. If you're here, know that God gave you this psalm to pray, to turn to him even when you don't see a way out. You don't need to rush off to a happy ending in every bleak moment but you do need to sit and turn your request to God. Let it all out. This impossible set of requests, God turning to us, God turning away. It's impossible because of our corruption, our evil, our frailty. God cannot merely let it go. And we also cannot endure his abandonment. Without the source of life, we cease to live. And we have the immense privilege to live in the years Anno Domini, after, in the year of our Lord, on this side of the cross of Jesus, to see what David couldn't in this moment, what David could only bleakly hope for. God did turn away from our rebellion and sin. And he did it by turning towards us in the person of Jesus. Jesus on the cross, strained under his own silence as his mockers abused him. Jesus on the cross felt God's silence. And when he broke his silence, it wasn't with tears, it was with, it is finished. The suffering and meaninglessness has been defeated in hope and new life. Let's pray. Lord God, we see our own failures. We see our rot and confusion and darkness. God, come to us in our tears. Forgive us and restore us. Amen.